0: I think Wesley knew a little bit of the gospel. There's parts of that Christmas hymn that get omitted. But boy, those last two stanzas. I want you to turn with me, if you would, to the gospel of John this morning, chapter 1. I bid you welcome those visiting with us this Christmas day. It's very good to see you, have you with us in the Lord's house. John's gospel reading from verse 1 in the opening chapter of the book. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 14. Trusting again the Lord's own blessing to be upon the public reading of His inspired Word. I'll ask you to join with me and let's bow our heads and hearts again in a moment's prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it is with joy that we sing at times, words today familiar to those even outside. But words we can sing with understanding. Words reminding us the wonder and the glory of the incarnation of our Savior. And we pray that today, you might bless us as we gather again around the Word. That the Word will lodge in our hearts. The word will be mixed with faith in those that hear it. And that we might even go forth with rejoicing of something more of our Christ this day. So bless us in these moments that we share. We pray it all in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. We've read familiar words today. Words that are not so immediately associated with the season as those words we find in the synoptics. Even those outside of the church are familiar with and recognize the familiar and memorable words of Luke as he describes Caesar's decree, as he tells us of the account of the angelic messengers to the shepherds. Matthew's record of the wise men's visit to Herod, and to the holy family, usually finds its way into our nativity scenes and our Christmas celebrations, although... We know those events transpired many months later, really, than the night of the birth. The differences in their accounts are interesting to study. As you come to look at the different points of emphasis and the detail that is given, they point out those, well, characteristic differences of the Gospels and the different perspectives and the different points of light. They focus upon the person and work of Jesus. Matthew's genealogy seems fitting to introduce the king, going back with an almost legal precision through David's line and then back to Abraham, the father of the race of the Jews. Luke, the historian, the physician, the companion to the apostle to the Gentiles, well, his account of the genealogy which follows that familiar narrative in chapter 2, takes us not merely back to David and Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. Luke reminding us and showing us something of the true humanity of the Lord Jesus in his emphasis. But John comes here to give us his record of the birth of Jesus. It is not as familiar as, again, the words of Luke or of Matthew, but John's account cannot be ignored in our Christmas meditations. It certainly finds prominence in Wesley's familiar words that we've just sung. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity. I did a paper, well, a chronometer, as you know, doesn't work, but what seems just a year or two ago for my studies in Wales, but was a good season back. But a study in John's Gospel and focus in particular on the Trinitarian evidence that is really all throughout his Gospel. John very careful in his Gospel to bring us to understanding the true deity of the Lord Jesus as Luke focuses our thoughts on Jesus the man. And so John's account of the nativity birth of Jesus in many ways gives us the very heart of the story. Perhaps not some of those romantic thoughts with regard to the attending circumstances of the birth. I mean, shepherds and sheep and live nativities and I always remember, you know, the shepherds in the school plays. Everybody's different style of bath towel. There were the The headings for the shepherds. But yet, John's account, the others certainly are true. The others certainly give us truth and parts of that story that we are to know and to rejoice in. But John just goes to the heart of the matter. The one that was born was and is the Son of God. In many ways, John's nativity story is the most significant, the most basic, the most fundamental of them all. So I want to focus today on the familiar words of verse 14. If We read these words together again. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I want simply to take the very words of the text as our thought and our outline today and just work through the phrases that are before us. First, very simply, the Word. And the Word was made flesh. Scholars spend their scholarly energies, and there have been many that have gone into seeking the source of John's logos, the word in the original underneath here, as I'm sure you're aware. But for all of their scholarly search and their finding of different philosophical presentations of this in the Greek world, the simplest and the most probable answer as to John's source material, if you will, it's the Old Testament Scriptures. I've always been taken back with the similarity in the prologue to John's Gospel and the opening chapters of Genesis. If You see that voice of God that walked with man in the cool of the day in the garden. And that's really remarkable in our meditations upon our Savior. To think that even prior to the fall, It's easy for us to understand and we see the clarity of the Scriptures with regard to man's need after the fall and Jesus' place in that mediatorial role. But that even prior to the fall, it was the Word. It was the voice of God that met with man. And I say the similarity between that voice in Genesis and the Word in John 1 is Seemingly, at least, clear for all to see. But as you turn other pages of the Old Testament scriptures, listen to the psalmist in Psalm 33 and verse 6 By the word of Jehovah, the heavens were made. More clearly, it could not be repeated than John saying here that the word was an agent of creation. By Him was not anything made, or without Him rather, was not anything made that was made. And so as we come, and we won't press to the full extent of study here, but the evidence that John gives, and as we've stated already, the the overriding purpose of his Gospel to present the true deity of Christ and to evoke belief in Him. The evidence in the opening phrases of his Gospel of this Triune God is so plain and easy to see for all that will care to look. When we read that the Word was in the beginning, He was with God and the Word was God. All the aspects of our doctrine of the Trinity are found here. The eternal existence of the Word. There are terms that John uses in this prologue to in particular that in various other contexts can be somewhat synonymous. But as is true with most synonyms, in Scripture in particular and in John's usage, when he brings them alongside of each other, it's the nuances of difference that are highlighted. When you look at the Word and underneath, the Word is just an. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Three times it is used here. The similar word, ghetto is found in verse 3 and verse 6 and verse 14. And when you look at the things that belong to the Word there, and you see that that nuance of difference here is that this term has a point of origin. Like when the Word was made flesh. It's not eternal existence that's in view. There's something that happened in time that's in view there as well we'll see in a few moments. But in that opening verse, no point of origin is given. It's eternal existence that is on display here. Not merely, if you will, the eternal existence of the Father, The eternal existence of the Son. The Word for... Clearly as John unfolds his teaching of the Word in this chapter, the Word is Jesus. The eternal existence of this Jesus is on display. And then we read on further. The Word was God. Here is not just the implication of the term, but the clear statement with regard to the Word. The Word was God. John is not leaving any doubt as to his opinion, his testimony, his experience, and then of course the witness of the Spirit through John by inspiration of the true deity of Jesus the word this one that was made flesh eternal existence essential deity but then then there's something that surprises us then there's something that begins to stretch the limits of our comprehension can I underscore a point of theology here? It's impossible for the finite to comprehend the infinite. We wouldn't want a God that we could comprehend. That wouldn't be God. The true God is beyond comprehension. The infinite can't be comprehended, completely understood. Have everything all neatly wrapped up and yeah, we got this. Because we're finite. But the point of doctrine we have to understand here is that God reveals Himself. While He can't be comprehended, He can be known. Truly known. And this is one of the beauties of our relation with Him. But as we consider that, this other part of who the Word is is put before us. Not only does He tell us the Word was God, He tells us the Word was with God. This personal relation that is put on display with regard to this Word Persons of the Godhead are here. If this were not enough, there's another piece of this Trinitarian evidence that John gives us. The creative activity of the Word. The Word created all things. Without the Word, without Him, was not anything made that was made and so this Word is not Himself a creature. This Word is indeed Himself creator. Creator. Well, these are just headings of thought that we could follow throughout other portions of Scripture. They're not our explicit purpose today, but when we come to this text, when we come to consider the incarnation of Jesus to pause and really begin to wrestle with who it is that becomes incarnate. And John's statements regarding the Word are clear and they are powerful. The Word was God. But then of course, the Next phrase that calls for our attention the word this word was made flesh. Ever ponder just the word incarnation? Flesh is in the middle of the term. We use the term various ways. We can use it metaphorically. We can speak of someone as the very incarnation of something, the very incarnation of strength, or the very incarnation of kindness, or whatever other attribute you want to mention. We can use it in that way. But here, it is a wonder of Christian theology. The word the one of whom all of these points of truth belong, he was made flesh. I'll never forget a lecture in our studies in systematic theology in seminary. I was grateful there were times when my instructor would pause and We'll kind of drift from lecturing to preaching. Well, that's really what the Bible is. We talk about doctrinal portions of the Word and practical portions of the Word, and yet it's in some of those practical admonitions that we see some of the loftiest theological statements at times. And then I would just remind you and hammer home to you again today, there is nothing more practical I don't care what part of life you're looking at. There's nothing more practical than deep theology of understanding and applying and thinking through the Gospel in every aspect of life. I remember that pause one day in our class looking at this doctrine of the Incarnation can go to Philippians 2 and look at that familiar condescension of the Lord Jesus. And we reach that pinnacle, if you will, of His humiliation where it says He became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. That form of execution specifically designed to humiliate and prolong the suffering of the one that was being executed. And we can marvel there at the condescension the humiliation of Jesus. Well, truly the cross was the pinnacle of His sufferings. But when you come and think of the Incarnation, we usually have nice, warm, romantic thoughts of Bethlehem's manger and then those more weighty thoughts when we think of Jesus on the cross. Think some weighty thoughts about the manger. Think of the infinite condescension that the second person of the eternal triune God stooped to take into union with Himself our nature. Humiliation. It culminates, if you will, at the cross, to be sure. It took an infinite step in the manger. Again, this is a piece of truth that we don't fear having boggle the mind. Two natures in one person. We see something in the gospel narratives of the times in which the the divine nature and the human nature, there are things that aren't communicated. Jesus can speak of things he doesn't know, and then yet he can tell a man his very thoughts. Would we want even a piece of our doctrine of God and our doctrine of the incarnation to again be something we comprehend? We got it all. But that the Word and all that that means, all that that begins to communicate to us, is put on display for us here. The Word was made flesh. To think of Him being united to us. To think of that phrase in Hebrews, He wasn't ashamed Call them brethren. Can we enter in to the heart, to the willing? Can we say the happy condescension, the happy humiliation of Jesus? But John continues. He says the Word was made flesh. There's that word that has the point of origin in contrast to the other word. So at this point in time, I had actually pondered having as my Christmas message this year time Pulling from the phrase in Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. I had some lofty goals I found in my not yet completely reorganized library, a little volume I bought several years ago by one of the creation scientists entitled Starlight and Time. It's one of the young earth biblical creationists wrestling with the problem, if you will, of these incredible distances that apparently even young earth creationists admit are relatively accurate forms of measurement. How can we see these things so far away? Well, just the opening chapters that were written for mere mortals like myself were mind-boggling. He had lengthy appendices for the more enlightened. and Well, I'm going to try and finish working through those, but... Well, I think perhaps a study like that might be a little beyond me, but to think of time itself part of the creation. God being infinitely above and distinct from time. But yet Jesus was made flesh and dwelt Among us. He entered time. It was in the fullness of time. And you can even think through the history of the world and and see that point in time in which He came. Israel has been under Gentile domination for some centuries now. Season the scriptures describe as the times of the Gentiles had not expired, indeed, it hasn't expired yet. But in these days, the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles nothing compared with the Pax Romana with regard to the pinnacle of human achievement. Of course, all of this under the care of a sovereign God. The Gentiles thought they were building a better world and empire by empire of course having to displace the others so they could do it better and they could control it themselves. But the Greek language that permeated the world yes beneficial to merchants and traders and politicians everybody being able to communicate and yet in the providence of God, a language through which the New Testament Scriptures would be given to the world. And the Romans and their might and in their building. I read an article several months ago now about the Roman roads. The part of those road systems that was just within the last few decades Discovered because there were pieces of their construction that were somewhat distant from the roads themselves, but they found them. Roads that the Apostle to the Gentiles traveled. One even mentioned in our New Testament Scriptures. The fullness of time. Our Savior came. But to come to John's phrase here, He dwelt. Among us. He dwelt among us. He lived here. This speaking as it does to the true humanity of Jesus, speaking powerfully as Paul takes it up in the phrase with regard to the high priest being taken from among those that he will represent, so it is with our jesus taken from among us when we think of him dwelling among us the aspects of his person and work we have emphasized here so frequently i pray in the mercy of god will never cease to emphasize here the active and the passive obedience of Jesus. Luke's Gospel. Again, I always just marvel at Luke, not merely as the historian, though that's Luke and Acts. Luke wrote the biggest chunk of a single writer of all the New Testament, which is a striking little piece of Bible trivia to grasp at times. I think it has to be Paul. How many books, how many epistles he wrote. But Luke and Acts are pretty long. But the historian that was also a physician. Mindful, studious of humanity. And to think of John that lived and moved with this Jesus. The many things that are behind John, many believe likely the cousin of Jesus. So even in youth, not merely in the days of public ministry, would have known this Word that was made flesh and dwelt among. i say we could even with the use of john's gospel the use of paul's epistles speak of that active and passive obedience of jesus those things with regard to god's law that he accomplished in our nature perfect obedience and perfect complete suffering But I want to draw your attention today to another aspect. He dwelt among us. Hebrews speaks with great clarity with regard to the work of our High Priest. Even by emphasis of the double negative, we have not a High Priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. How powerfully to call us to mind that we do have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, for he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The glory of both of those phrases without sin that He wasn't like us in that way. Praise God, because that's the only way He can be our Redeemer. But He was tempted in all points like as we are. He was like us. John truly, a relative, a lifelong friend, acquaintance. Then the marvel of being an apostle. The added emphasis of being one of the inner three in the band of disciples that was with Christ on those select occasions where more of Himself was to be revealed and witnessed. For John to say, He dwelt among us. What power there is there. What experience of this One who is touched with our infirmities. One who knows all that it is to be bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. And though sinless Himself, though having nothing in Him to answer to sin, Yet lived his life in the cursed world. Again, how is it phrased in Hebrews? He endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. We have a bad day. Everybody's against me. We kind of cry like Jacob. All these things are against me. How much more did Jesus dwell among us? But the last phrase of this giant text, we beheld His glory. The glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We beheld His His glory. With our own version of hindsight, we can imagine the things that were included in John's beholding of Jesus. He is a disciple, an apostle, whose very definition includes being an eyewitness to the risen Christ. While these have not been and cannot be our experience, And yet one who with John was in that inner three of the apostolic band. Who was with John on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Apostle Peter, who speaks in his second epistle of the wonder of that experience when he was with him, when this Jesus was transfigured before him and his countenance shone as bright as the noonday sun. He beheld his glory as did John. And yet, Peter tells us that we have a more sure word of prophecy. The things about this Jesus, we don't behold historically and with that personal interaction and the experience of being present when these things were wrought in history. But yet we have an inspired record of all of these things. We have the ability to pour over all the pages of the New Testament and not perhaps even struggle with the evolving understanding of the disciples, if you will. Peter, in that epistle, really some of the most striking words with regard to the inspiration of Scripture. That more sure word of prophecy. And then he speaks of those that were born along by the Spirit of God. You think even of the event, if you will, of Scripture. Approximately 15 centuries in its compilation with, what is it, 40 or so writers and the unity, the themes that so run through the pages of the Word It is indeed humanly impossible for such a thing to be produced. But not by the Spirit of God. And We have the more sure word. We can look at this phrase and say we are called upon to behold Him. We're called upon to behold His glory. So how much can we say more should we than the apostles themselves wonder and adore and worship and witness and have devotion and service and joy and peace be a part of our beholding Bethlehem's babe. Calvary's Savior. The one who leaves a vacant tomb. The one who's ascended to the right hand of the Father. The one who's taken His seat above and tells His people that we are seated with Him there. There's a lot that we need to bring to our meditations, to the miracle we commemorate at Christmas. I'm all for reading and memorizing Luke 2. I'm all for understanding and working through and even scratching our heads a little bit about what the wise men were looking at and where did they get their information That in itself makes you think about the testimony of some of the Jews that were taken captive and their expectations of the promises being fulfilled still. But John forces us to look at the whole picture. Not to leave any part of it out. He speaks of this incarnate Word. So let us this Christmas Day think of John's nativity. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. May God help us to grasp Believe the truth as it is in Jesus. And may we with the Apostle and all of the blood church marvel at the grace. Marvel at the grace that is put on display at Christmas. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful today that we can pray to a God who is not only a God who cannot lie, but a God whose promises in Christ Jesus have been fulfilled. Promises that are yea and amen, promises that spoke of a Savior, a Messiah. A king that would come and yet come in humiliation. Would even approach Zion riding a donkey. We see even in those genealogies that we've only referenced today how carefully you have fulfilled your word When others were not mindful, who's thinking about a throne with this impoverished carpenter and his betrothed bride in Nazareth? No, the world looks and says with a great measure of understanding what good thing could come out of Nazareth. We see... He was not ashamed to call us brethren. He wasn't ashamed to take up the carpenter's tool. He wasn't ashamed to not have a place to lay his head. Because there was a joy set before him that he might redeem his people. That he might come Purchase their eternal home and ascend to the Father and even give us... Lord, what a a statement. As we look at the wonder of this creation even under the curse, to think that our Creator and Redeemer is right now preparing a place for us. Lord, give us thoughts to rejoice and even sing with the angels of who this Jesus in Bethlehem was and is. May we be lost in wonder, love, and praise this Christmas day. We pray it in Jesus, worthy,